What happened to the economy? The economy, um, as best I remember, was, uh, you know, Brendan and Brendan has always had a knack for finding these little out of the way, mm -hmm. odd buildings that he could do a, you know, a, a commercial enterprise. And Has he still got this together? What's that? Has he still got this together? Not no. so much. Not so much. But, uh, I think what happened is the landlord, you know, typical thing up the rent, and they wanted to upscale it. And, mm -hmm. You know, the, the warehouse district was starting to develop. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Brendan worked the World's Fair, um, uh, and then I think you know by the time eighty nine ninety hit, the warehouse district was finally beginning to be something commercially mm -hmm. viable. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the instant impact that all the developers assumed it would. It had. Mm -hmm. a, you know, five, seven year lag time. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this this property became quite, and it became the economy. Mm -hmm. Okay, economy. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember this. It's sort of a, you know, fine dining uh -huh. restaurant for people who worked in the warehouse district uh -huh. for attorneys. And, and Brendan and Tim left it, and uh, Pat. Um, Pat, uh, Pat and Joyce lived there at Exart. They uh -huh. lived, you know, Clint uh, yeah. was was their uh, landlord. Wow, okay, so this is how the, the group... And then Joyce, Joyce was killed in a motorcycle accident. Really? Oh, oh yeah, that, that was, uh, that was, um, that was really horrible. Mm. This, uh, Pat's girlfriend, Joyce, first of all, was the most single, most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Wow. You know, she's like from South Dakota had like Native American and some other mix, uh, really cool, um, Pat was teaching her how to paint, you know the mermaids that were above the bar at the mermaid? Yeah. That was her painting. Oh wow. Yeah. Huh. Um, she was incredibly cool, so when she died, Pat went back to Galveston and uh, Brendan was living on Carondelet Street, and then he and I stayed friends, and uh, we started writing songs for Tribe Nunzio. He started helping with songs for Tribe Nunzio, mm -hmm. lyrically. Mm -hmm. What was on his mind? What was he writing about? Well, Brendan um, writes about a lot of things. Uh, um, how do you describe Brendan? My God. Um, I had never met a more natural poet in my life. Yeah. My frustration with songwriting, I, I, I've always loved writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I love writing stories, mm -hmm. I love writing essays, I love writing things that are long-winded that mm -hmm. I can edit. Brendan, and what I couldn't do was distill the English language to a song, mm -hmm. to a lyric, mm -hmm. to a poem. And, you know, I would read Brendan's lyrics and go like, you know, how the fuck does he do this? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, you know? The mm -hmm. first thing we wrote together was St. Elmo. We all of us sinners, we all of us sin, but that don't make us losers, and losers can win. Uh -huh. I pray St. Elmo. Uh -huh. I pray to you, my heart is broken, what can you do? Okay. You know, I mean, it's just really well distilled, great rhyme structures, things that you don't really know what they mean, but they mean everything. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, just the, the, 
the skill of a true poet. And he'd studied poetry. I mean, Brendan, oh, really? you know, Brendan uh, studied poetry uh -huh. uh, and uh, is a voracious reader. Uh-huh. You know, it seems like it. Yeah, extremely it. literate human being. And, I mean, Brendan writes a lot about the tragedy of life, uh -huh. you know. Um, uh -huh. He has been uh, exposed to uh, the tragedy of life mm -hmm. on a very real and visceral level. Mm -hmm. And what he speaks um, comes from experience in the heart, and uh, it's not... Uh, it's not imagined. You know, he, he knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so you're now writing with him for, for Nunzio. Tell me about the, the, how does the, all these people are involved with the mermaid. So now, how the hell does the mermaid show up? And quite frankly, I was having too much of a good time to notice when it actually started. So, <laughs> if you can... <laughs> <laughs> well, Tribe, let's go see, Tribe Nunzio goes on the road, becomes very famous all over the United States, plays its ass out. Did loses, you, in fact? Loses a record contract in New York City playing with the Meters. Wow, really? Yeah, the Meters invited us to uh, open for them for three nights of Tramps. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, we get these incredible gigs. Um, and uh, we had, you know, SBK, Seymour Stein came and saw us from... Uh, you know, from uh, Sire Records. I mean, we had a cast of... I'm what? opening for the meters in 10 days. Are you? Yeah. yeah. I have a feeling if we pay 10, 10 gigs, it might deal with the individual fee of each of the guys, maybe, to get the other way. <laughs> I think they, I've heard they contract independently. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyway, carry on anyway. <laughs> no, no, I... I uh, I, I'm sure I didn't get paid as much as that. In fact, I almost didn't get paid. I almost got right. beat up by uh, the owner of Tramps. Uh -huh. But, um, yeah, you know, Joe Cabral was playing with us in those days. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Joe Cabral. This was before the Iguanas. Joe uh, became our sax guy uh, and, you know, added so much to the band. He was just so cool and such a cool cat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I remember this incredible ride I had with Joe Cabral. We did a lot of gigs out west because Frank Quintini was our manager, mm -hmm. who also managed the Subdudes. Mm -hmm. And he so he got us gigs in Fort Collins and Boulder and all. You know, we would go out west mm -hmm. twice a year. We'd play the ski resorts and we'd play uh, Taos and we'd play uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming mm -hmm. and Salt Lake City and Austin and you know go all the way around and come all the way back. We go on six week tours mm -hmm. um, in a fucked up. <laughs> suburban, hauling our own fucking PA system. Uh -huh. You know, this was a day when nobody had PAs in the house. We uh -huh. set it up every night. Yeah. It was fucking hard work. Uh -huh. But um, Joe and I were riding across the uh, front range, uh, I guess it's called, between Boulder and Fort Collins together. And uh, I asked him, I was like, you know, really want you to you know, join this band. I mean, my God, you're so cool. You play so well. And he's like, I got this guy Rod Hodges that I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, true to his nature and his credit, he was like, you know, I, I just can't commit to you guys. I'd love to play whenever I can, but, you know, we got this thing we're going to do called the Iguanas. And, uh -huh. and, you know, so, you know, that, 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 uh, Joe and Iguanas became, you know, the right. next great thing. Right. Um, 
But Tribe Nunzio basically eventually, like all bands do, they run their course uh-huh. for you know a myriad of things that aren't worth discussing. Uh-huh. You know, they're personal and, and you know that just are whatever. But what happened was, you know, the dust sort of settled around that, and Brendan and I uh, continued to sort of meet up and write songs together. And then I was, you know, at that point I had stopped playing music full-time and I was starting to renovate homes and use my architecture okay. kind of skills because uh, we had children. We mm-hmm. and I started to have kids and financial obligations grew and, uh, you know, I had to step up to the plate. Um, and then one day I was renovating a house, I'll never forget it. Uh, I got a call um, from Brendan and he said, what are you doing on whatever day it was, Friday, mm-hmm. 2 o'clock? I want you to meet me at this place on uh, John Churchill Chase. And uh, I said, okay. So hung up the phone and uh, took off work that particular afternoon and met him there. And then in walks uh, Johnny McCollum, mm-hmm. Tommy Ellis, Kenny Sipnick, you know, Kenny Claiborne. Yes. Um, God, who else? Pete McHugh, an old friend of ours. Three or four other people, Um, and uh, he says, "Look, this place is for lease. You know, they want twelve hundred a month. Um, Is everybody willing to put in five hundred bucks, seven hundred fifty bucks? We could open. It's got a liquor license. It's running. Uh We could open it up um, in three weeks." And start a club, uh-huh. and much to Brendan's credit, he picked people from all different social scenes. Okay, you know, which was That's really awesome. smart. You uh-huh. know, interesting. Johnny McCollum had this sort of uptown, you know, New Orleans insider crowd. You uh-huh. know, Pete had these. Uh, Tommy Ellis had the film festival crowd. You know, I had the Tribe Nunzio people oh, and that, that connection. Um, uh, and Pat, he convinced Pat to come back from Galveston uh-huh. and help run the bar. Right. So Pat came back. He okay. called Pat in Galveston, and Pat, you know, um, decided that you know he could come back to New Orleans and uh-huh. get involved in this. So that was 1994, November. Actually, that was October. We opened in November of 1994. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we each put in 500 bucks. We bought a shitload of beer. Um, we probably... I had to leave town. I had already scheduled a trip to Mexico with my wife and kids, and I left town. And they cleaned the bar and got it all set up. Oh, really? Go. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. And there was one meeting where we debated the name. Mm-hmm. And it was decided to call it The Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Much because of the uh, Mermaid in London, where mm-hmm. uh, Shakespeare and uh, others drank. Okay. Uh-huh. And, uh, let me see here, what did, who, who, and so what was, how did the place open? I mean, was it just opened as a beer drinking spot, or did you start No, no, with, we decided to make it a live music club. Live In music. fact, I had a PA, mm-hmm. um, from, uh, Tribe Nunzio mm-hmm. that, you know, I had, I owned. Mm-hmm. Um, so we hung that in the room. We, I remember I had this incredible all-night fight with Brendan one night. Mm-hmm. I mean, we... I have never had a fight like this in my life without actually hitting someone. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because I insisted there be a sound man, mm-hmm. that we pay somebody every night mm-hmm. to be a sound person because mm-hmm. it would be important to the musicians mm-hmm. right. playing the club that they were confident that the shit would sound good uh-huh. and that it was, you know, uh-huh. that that was important to me having been in bands and uh-huh. being in situations where you don't mm-hmm. have that. And Brendan didn't want to yield. And I think we drank from 10.30 till 6.30 uh-huh. and just had the greatest fight on earth over this one particular <laughs> I love what I love that it was over this particular feature I, yeah yeah. I, yeah yeah it was over the, the issue of the sound man he's like Pat Pat can do the sound I'm like Pat can't do the sound yeah. there's no way on earth Pat can do the sound you know and that's when I was like Clint we, you know we can hire Clint I yeah. know Clint Clint can do the sound so we decided that we would not ever fight again <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it was too exhausting. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was resolved that we would have a sound man. Okay. Uh, so basically, I began booking the club mm-hmm. from a position of, okay, I'm the one who knows probably more musicians than anyone mm-hmm. in the scene. Uh, and then I just started to put a roll of, you know, a phone book together. In those days, there was no email, there was no cell phones. Mm-hmm. You know, this is 1994. Yeah, right. nobody, almost nobody had a cell phone. So people were calling me at home, mm-hmm. non fucking stop, mm-hmm. because you know people started playing there, and it was like, wow, this is a cool venue. You know, that was privilege. I remember I got in there real early. I don't. Know. Yeah, you did. Lesmer also were in there real early, and I, I think before that, the thing about it is, I think we were doing that wasn't long after. And see, I was still playing 1994. I just stopped playing with the reward recently, but I was. I was definitely living in, I'd moved in with my girlfriend in the French Quarter in like 92, 93, something like that, Julie Williams, and then right about when the midst of the years you're talking about with the mermaid is right when I would have started living with Alex. Right. Exactly. Right. And you wouldn't, I mean, Alex was under the radar at that point. I'd given him my gig in the reward because they drove me crazy. Right. He was afraid to play. Yeah, he was under he was under the, ra- under the radar, right. and you know, we started, I, I you know, I was calling Bingham. <laughs> Right. It was a friend of mine who I built a studio for. Um, right. Okay. I built the boiler room. And so Mark and I right. were friends. I was, you know, calling everybody I could, just trying to dream up gigs and, you know, see who would play. And then, you know, what I found out, which is so quintessential New Orleans, is, you know, you finally hook up with three or four people that can make 10 or 12 bands. Yeah, right. That's what you know. So, but don't don't you think you sort of created that? I mean, it's an odd thing that occurs to me. Like, okay, like the other gig up the street was, and it was right up the street was the Warehouse Cafe. Right. And I remember, and now now there's Cafe Brazil, and these are all places that are booking almost near anything that looks like it might be if it has the semblance of an idea with some people involved. Correct. It's a yes situation. Correct. Well, I don't know what changed since then, but <laughs> this is no longer the mode. But I'm trying to work out how this how this comes to be the mode, you know, at that at that point for like you know, so many places. Which I like. What I'm saying is, I think that actually formed that situation. The fact that there was a situation where uh, you could have people come in, have fast ideas, and you're like, no, I want to do this thing, whether it's Wonka or whether it's some more right. formed band or right, whether it's right. we're going to do. Well, I mean, to me, it, you know, it's sort of like a cosmological thing where, you you know, you've got 
a very young solar system that's loaded with dust and particles and shit. That's great. And, you know, things start to gravitate mm. towards one another, but they're not formed yet. Uh -huh. So, you know, there are no hard rock planets. Right. There, There's just this sort of ether in which all of these people are floating around. They all are sort of of the same age within four to six years. Yeah. Uh, and then add people into that, like Richard Theodore and Hart McNee, who are much older, much older. but are also wanting to play with younger cats. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you add to that mix people like Pat Cronin, who insisted that Mutiny have a standing Wednesday night gig. Yes, unbelievable. You know, that was his doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was like, no, 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 we need to encourage mutiny. This is great. This shit's great, you, you know. And he was the one who was there every night. I mean, the, the way the mermaid played out, we started with all these partners. Mm. But the way it played out is Brendan ran the nuts and bolts of the business. Mm. You know, it was Brendan who bought the beer, who paid the, you know, paid all the bills, who, uh, you know, who made sure that deliveries were there and received everything. And, you know, he ran the business. He made it work. Mm -hmm. And then Pat was the nighttime guy. Mm -hmm. Pat was the face of the mermaid. Mm -hmm. Brendan never, you know, was hardly ever there at night. Mm -hmm. um, Brendan's not a deep nighttime guy. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and then I was booking it. I was the guy and doing the calendars. The calendars. The calendar was, was an amazing thing. The calendars were also something that Pat and I would always have a great time with. And it was like, you know, the more I got to know people, you know, you get to know Davis, and you get to know Alex, and you get to know Mutiny, and, you know, Molly, and Tyler, and Rutabaga, oh, and, right. you know, FSQ, and, you know, all these people. Yeah. Then, you know, the puns were really funny, and we always wanted, you know, we in those days it was a mailing list. Right. You know, That's I would right. go to Kinko's, and we'd, we'd photocopy labels, and we'd stick them on the postcards, and we'd have these Sunday nights where we'd get together and put together 150 things that would go out in the mail and Brendan would bring them to the post office. Uh -huh. They were so homemade that to me, I am so glad that I was part of something that was so lowbrow and high-end. Yeah. Because now it's, you know, everything's email and Facebook and, you know, the, the way you notify people is so instantaneous and almost without design. Yeah, yeah. There's no sort of mindset that goes into it. And yeah. in those days, we were like, how do we, how do we coax people to get these things? How do we make something that somebody wants on their refrigerator? Right. So yeah. Pat would every month do an Incredible Mermaid. You yeah. know, some ridiculously beautiful, right. <laughs> bizarre mermaid uh -huh. that would be on the one side of the counter. Uh -huh. And then I would have my side of the calendar that would be, you know, my, my sole goal was to make Pat laugh. Uh, yeah, which Pat laughed, <laughs> and Brandon thought they were pithy or funny, because I was writing for some tough critics. I knew I couldn't. Like, Dude, I, I remember one time I, I almost got beaten up. I got threatened in there because I somehow ended up on the microphone with some band reading the calendar. I was like, I'm gonna read the, I'm gonna sing or read. The, I don't remember if I was reading or singing the fucking calendar. And yep. some guy in the audience said, "Either you get the fuck off." Or I'm gonna, <laughs> I think I remember that. Night. I remember Pat telling me about that. Night. Yeah. And I was just like, come on, we got to read the calendar, man. So these people know what's going on. Here. And those were the kind of things that were like, this is really fun. This is, you yeah. know, it was like, 
Oh my God! I mean, to have that kind of friendship and those kind of people and that kind of environment. Mm. I mean, I, I'll never forget. You know, when my kids were small, and you know, it was often times where it was, you know, you'd spend hours putting a child to sleep, and then you're wired. Mm-hmm. Kids finally sleep, and you're fucking wide awake. Mm. And it's ten o'clock at night, and you know, mm-hmm. I don't really feel like watching David Letterman mm-hmm. or the news. I'd drive down the Mermaid from my house in, uh, in, in right on Gentilly in Grand Route. I could be to the Mermaid in eight minutes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'd put on some music and I'd pour myself a drink, just hang out, and I'd just hang out, or I'd go in the studio and listen. To it. And that was the thing. The studio too was, uh, you know, that was a big part of. Right, I was going to get on that. The recordings. What yeah, the recordings it? were so much uh, a part of that place. And what did that? What was that? You were recording on a reel to reel, like a. Well, we had I had I had bought a eight track reel to reel, a mixing console, and a DBX rack from um, oh my god, who was it? Mark Bingham hooked me up with it. Mm-hmm. Can't remember the cat I bought it from right now, but Bingham said, "Look, this cat's selling this half inch machine." We bought that. I bought that, and then I think it was Pat and I one day. We're in there talking about chess records, and you know the bar room, and you know that was associated with chess records. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, like, well, we should put a studio in here. So Clint, at that time, was the sound man, and eventually was made a partner. Mm-hmm. And he and I sort of figured out this harebrained scheme for how to build a studio inside mm-hmm. the office of this club, mm-hmm. uh, and also how to keep it comfortable. Mm-hmm. God bless Clint. Clint took a window unit mm-hmm. and turned it into a central air conditioner wow. for that one room. Wow. So he took the coil, put it outside, uh-huh. took the air handler, put it above the room with the return air. Oh, wow. Ran copper from the coil, just took a regular window unit and broke it in half. So we had a window unit, the fan part of the window unit, and the, uh, uh, up top where the duct was and the cool air was circulating and the coil which dissipated the heat was outside so it didn't put heat in the office and that was the coolest room in the fucking place I remember I remember they used to have all the bartenders come in and like hang out hang out and so and I remember it was like optional like you would were you recording you weren't recording everything we didn't record everything but we recorded quite a bit and at that point we bought uh, I bought a DAT player um, and uh we bought, you know, we made, we decided to make an investment. So I think we put, I can't remember how many hundreds or eight thousand dollars into compressors, cabling, uh, a couple of effects devices. Um, uh, we bought a snake splitter from uh, Mike Montero mm-hmm. so that we could split our signal. Okay. So when you plugged in at the uh, stage, one signal went to the studio, one signal went to the mixing board, so we had a totally discreet That's how mix. that happened. Okay, I remember now, because yeah. I remember initially there was like some kind of mic hanging situation or something, wasn't right. there initially, and then... You there was that. initially that, and then we bought the splitter, and that allowed us to send twenty or 16 tracks independently to the studio. Is that why you moved the stage? Or moved, I remember we were... No, no, we moved the stage because of the uh, cotton mill. When Press Kabakov developed uh, that building, okay. uh-huh. when we moved in there, it was you know that building yeah. was vacant. Okay. The, the uh, cotton mill had been you know, it was derelict. Uh-huh. 
and then we caught wind of Kabakov moving in and putting people, and we were like, holy shit, this corner entrance isn't going to really work out anymore, because every time the door opens, somebody's going to bitch. Uh-huh. So we decided to move our entrance to the alley, and so we blew all the sound out to the interstate. Oh, right. Okay. And put the stage, double insulate glass, and make a real dense stage, and face the interstate. Well, that stage was amazing. I mean, I remember I was I was always worried when somebody was putting up a some kind of wooden stage on a on, on a floor like that because there was a way it would either become bouncy or and it was just really weird things. And it was amazing. I mean, I remember I used to tell people like, "Why don't you have Jeff Treffinger come in here and do whatever the hell they did over there?" Filled it with it, sand. Yeah, yeah, good. Whatever. Filled it with sand. It was good. And 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 I, I think about five hundred offbeat magazines. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those things are great for stuffing. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, uh, we we got a load of sand delivered and we shoveled it in, and uh, man, we we worked our asses off. So after you got shut down, uh, how come you all didn't open another place or didn't feel do, do any of this again? Well, the, the partnership sort of ran into trouble. Um, and, you know, not to get specific, but to get eight or nine people, you know, to, to, to agree on anything is mm-hmm. ludicrous. Yeah. Um, I mean, even if you're on a baseball team, I don't think everybody agrees on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But this was even worse. Uh, some of the people, including myself, I mean, I, you know, having kids and then 2001, I invest in the truck farm. So oh, right. I'm pulled away and, you know, renovating those houses. Um, several of the partners never really, you know, kept their responsibilities up, whatever they were, as vaguely as they were defined. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we had all had it. Uh-huh. Like, you know, when the landlady pulled the plug and didn't renew our lease, it was like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there wasn't enough inertia and enough strength with amongst each other to, mm. to do the thing again. And also, you know, a realization that, you know... You can't make this again. Yeah. You really would be forcing this, because this thing was so natural and so much fun Mm. and so one of a kind, Mm. you know, that you could hope and you could try, but I don't think you could ever recreate what we had during those 10 years. So it's very interesting because the, the... you know, that's an odd 10 years in, the, in as much as the, the mermaid goes somewhere in the other warehouse that's been, that had been a long time previously. But the, mer- the mermaid goes uh, shortly afterwards, Cafe Brazil goes. Yeah. And shortly before, and the matador disappeared. There's a lot of places that had a particular kind of sort of uh, way of doing business with musicians that suddenly disappears. Yep. And I'm thinking to myself, everyone thought exactly that. Oh, you can't repeat this. We're not going. I mean, I wasn't on that side of the bar, but, you know, like um, from our side of the bar, it was like, whew, what happened? There's nothing. You can't play anywhere now. You can't. And you have to, you know, the, the, the odd thing now is you actually can't go into a club with an idea. Specifically can't anymore. You cannot go in and say, I have this idea, you know. That that no longer works for getting you. Yeah, yeah and that's that's that's, <laughs> that's 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 a real terrible thing because um, I always felt, and I th- I know Pat felt the same way, and, and and absolutely too, Brendan, that 
uh, it was so important to create an environment where odd things could happen, mm. where uh, unusual formulations could happen, mm. where you know you could see things you would you know that you would never see again. Yeah. that were just sort of one-offs mm -hmm. um, and were not formulaic. Yeah. Um, and that was by prescription. I mean, yeah. we, we, it became harder and harder to do that. Why? Well, because I think what happened is that solar system started to, you know, the planet started to form. Okay. You know, once you know, finger bowl formed oh, yeah, yeah. and became, you know, its own thing. Well, then Kevin O'Day and Alex, you know, were committed. Yeah. They had a hard schedule. They yeah. were. The Klezmers were touring. You guys were playing California. You guys, yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, uh, the Galactic became huge. Yeah. Um, and prior to that, I think what was happening was that there was... Uh, there was not stasis. Mm -hmm. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. There was uh, there was something going on that was truly of that era. And there's this, you know, great um, Zen cone. What is yeah. it? A cone? Not a cone. Yeah. yeah, that's like you know, every every generation must say must die. Yeah. And a new one must come. That's right. You know, and and very much. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what happened. And you know, I I think that even as somebody who was helping with the booking. I stopped booking the club in 98. I had four or five years of booking the club and and then Brendan was booking it and you know I was still looking for those kind of things but they were harder to pull off. I mean Davis did some stuff you know Random Cats uh, but you know in the early days there was uh, the Jungle Book you know there was uh, you know I mean how do you get how do you get 15 people to agree to do five rehearsals yeah. to play a gig where they're going to make thirty-five dollars, right? Right. You know, that was and, the way you did it then. You know, and it's and and that—that's uh, a very difficult thing to do because you know when I see the effort that went into uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Tommy, right? You know, was fucking Tommy was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I listened to that CD the other day. Uh, you know, unbelievably mm. cool. You know, incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah. It was really, it was really something. I mean, I think, of, well, I think of the achievements. I mean, you know, I, I could contribute an endless time when I was living with Alex. Our rent was one hundred fifty dollars each month. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you know, thirty-five dollars. All right, you know, you can make that work. It's yeah. a third of your rent. <laughs> yes, it's a third of your rent. Right. It's a joke that if it got really bad, I could panhandle that in probably two days. <laughs> <laughs> See, I mean, that's yeah. a, that, and that's you know, to me, you, uh, you know, you, you, you're thankful. I mean, I'm thankful for what I, what luck I had. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, because what luck I had, my God, you know, to come to become involved in a band. That was so popular that I had so much fun and be involved in a nightclub mm -hmm. to uh, actually produce and engineer a bunch of really cool records out of that place. Mm -hmm. uh, do a radio show for a couple, two, three years at a TUL. 
and interesting figures everywhere. I, I I wouldn't believe how much how many hours I spent talking to Pat Cronin. I mean, first thing is I could drink like a nut, but all, you, it was all fascinating. You know about everything I knew about and more. So you'd learn a lot and hang around. And it was it was amazing. He was really my uh, musical scholar, man. It was, it was unbelievable, man. The, the cassettes, the tape cassettes that were going on the stereo. Like, what the fuck is this, yeah. man? <laughs> you know, Pat knew more about music. Pat Cronin knows more about anything right. uh, than uh, than most people. He is uh, he's a rare bird, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really lucky to count him as a as a friend because. Mm. Uh, He's tender, he's witty, yeah. he's mean when he has to be, mm -hmm. uh, big-hearted, talented as a motherfucker, so fucking skilled. His yeah. paintings are just awesome. I mean, nobody's seen his paintings. If you ever went to his house and asked him to open his flat file, you, you would, your jaw would drop. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just yeah. really... I mean, he went to San Francisco Art Institute. Uh -huh. You know, like 69. Wow. He's, he's, he's schooled. Uh -huh. He knows what he's doing. Yeah.